Welcome to this peer voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash HPE. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. Welcome to this peer voice activity on improving obesity care in clinical practice. This activity comprises a series of six streaming episodes with Professor Carl LaRue. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, I am Carl LaRue. I'm a consultant in metabolic medicine and professor at University College Dublin in Ireland. And welcome to this activity that will comprise of six micro episodes where I will discuss how to approach, screen, diagnose and communicate about the disease of obesity. And I will touch upon the existing and emerging treatments that we have for this disease. Now, in this first episode, I will address one of the greatest challenges for people with the disease of obesity, as well as us as healthcare professionals. And that is the discrimination that people with obesity experience and which is still integral um, part of this disease. So what can we do as healthcare professionals to overcome this weight bias? So let me introduce you to Jake. He's a 52-year-old man, and he comes to see you because he complains of snoring loudly and feeling quite tired when he wakes up. Now, on visual inspection, Jake seems to be overweight. He doesn't report any other medical um, history. So question to you, how would you approach the conversation with Jake? You know, and which of the following would you normally do when a person visits you and on visual inspection, you think they may have um, the disease of obesity? I would suggest to you that it is you need to discuss the patient's primary concern and then ask them if they are comfortable discussing their weight. So many times people come to our services and they come in with problem X, you make the visual observation that the patient may have obesity and suddenly the entire conversation, you know, is linked to their obesity. We appreciate that, you know, there's more than 220 complications of obesity. So very often there is a link, but patients experience this in a very negative way where they say, actually, I came for problem X and yet everything is being brought back uh, to the fact that I have obesity. So I think it's important that we focus on what the patient comes from, and then we ask permission to actually address, you know, what we think, you know, is a major contributing factor. And I really like this idea of the five A's that was driven by Arya Sharma and um, Obesity Canada, where the first A is ask, second is assess, the third one is advise, the fourth one is agree, and the final one is assist. And of course, this was driven in the context of obesity, but I use this in all chronic care. And this is what we do in good medicine. And I think it's important that we just do exactly the same when it comes to the disease of obesity.
So both people with obesity and healthcare professionals carry weight biases. And, you know, this generates the stigma that patients do suffer from. Now, healthcare professionals should be encouraged to approach and treat obesity in exactly the same way as they do all other chronic diseases. And, of course, better education for healthcare professionals, you know, about the disease of obesity, the pathophysiology, the chronic disease management, this will help us as healthcare professionals, but also our patients. And of course, healthcare professionals are comfortable with good practices when it comes to chronic disease management. And all we need to help them do is put obesity in that same box. And the minute you do that, a lot of these challenges that we have around weight stigma um, will disappear. So thank you for watching and join me at the next episode where I will discuss how to integrate obesity screening in clinical practice. So hello, I am Professor Carl LaRue, and in this episode, I will discuss how to incorporate obesity screening in everyday practice. Now, you will remember our um, patient, uh, Jake, who is a 52-year-old man, and he presented um, for the first time complaining of snoring loudly and feeling very tired when he waked up. Now, Jake on visual inspection, you know, was overweight, but he gave no other medical history. So the next steps in that process, you know, after listening and discussing his concerns about his sleep disturbance, you know, and explaining to him that, you know, I think I want to refer him um, to exclude um, the disease of sleep apnea, I also asked Jake permission to discuss his weight. If Jake confirms that he's fine discussing his weight, what would be the next step? And of course, after discussing Jake's concerns, you know, I would suggest that measuring his body mass index, waist circumference, and taking a specific medical history to see if he has other obesity-related complications would be the next step. Very often we think that we can just diagnose obesity by weighing somebody or taking away circumference or just doing one of those. But it's really the combination of understanding if this is a clinical disease or, in fact, if the patient just has a high body mass index. So that's why we have to approach obesity and diagnosing obesity in exactly the same way as we would do all other chronic diseases. Specific complications trigger routine screening for the disease of obesity. And the disease is not a person's fault, but it is their responsibility. But it's also my responsibility as a healthcare provider to diagnose and treat this disease. So considering weighing every individual in your clinical practice is a perfectly reasonable thing because you're looking for transitions. You're looking for people who are transitioning from normal weight to overweight or from overweight to um, having the disease of obesity. So actually measuring people means that they are comfortable every time you do that without a major problem. But it's also important that we make the consultation room comfortable and welcoming to patients. So, for example, if you have a scale that doesn't weigh up 
above, for example, 150 kilograms and somebody comes to you weighing 160 kilograms, they stand on that scale and it doesn't measure their weight. That is incredibly um, embarrassing for the patient and for you. And now what do you do? So make sure that your equipment is fit for purpose. And also, we need to make sure that, for example, our chairs are comfortable because very often patients look at chairs and think, oh, my goodness, I'm going to break that chair if I sit on it. Or even worse, if they sit down, they get stuck because the arms are too close to each other. So having that environment that is optimal helps our patients feel comfortable. And a simple thing that we can also do is making sure that we have blood pressure cuffs that are fit for purpose. Because if you now have a person coming with obesity and suddenly your blood pressure cuff isn't correct, now you're running around trying to get the right blood pressure cuff. The patient thinks, oh my goodness, this healthcare professional, you know, I'm causing them so much trouble. And now, you know, this is even more embarrassing. I'm never going to come back and do this again. And of course, for you as a healthcare provider, it's also difficult because you are trying, you're in a stressful situation. So make sure that you are prepared at all times to be managing people because, you know, 25% of the population that, of people who are coming through any clinic will have the disease of obesity. So thank you for watching and join me at the next episode where I will discuss the why and how of obesity diagnosis. Hello, I am Professor Carl Leroux, and in this episode, I will address why an obesity diagnosis is important, how it should be done, and how to communicate this to a person that you have just diagnosed with a disease of obesity. So you'll remember our um, patient, Jake, you know, and of course we discuss how we need to listen to Jake's worries first and um, the reasons of why he came to visit. We can then ask permission to discuss his weight and we can then measure Jake's weight, his waist circumference and take a medical history to confirm the diagnosis of obesity. Now, of course, he presented originally because he was snoring loudly and feeling very tired when he woke up. And on visual inspection, um, he did look overweight, but didn't have any other medical history. So now we have confirmed that his body mass index is 30.5 kilograms per meter squared and his waist circumference is 106. So do you think that a body mass index of 30.5 um, puts Jake at risk of clinical obesity. And I would say, yes, Jake's BMI indicates that he has the risk of clinical obesity. The BMI on its own is a screening tool. It's not enough on its own just to make the diagnosis, but it helps me and you work out, can we now find evidence that this body mass index is associated with excess adipose tissue and then more importantly if it's associated with a deterioration in health and that is going to be the focus as we move to try to make the diagnosis of obesity because of course we look at body mass index as an epidemiological tool and it's very helpful from epidemiology and we can even classify people as so-called underweight normal weight, 
Um, we can use the term overweight, and then we can use the term class 1 obesity, class 2 obesity, and class 3 obesity for people with a body mass index over 40. But we also need to understand that adipose tissue, um, you know, not only the amount, but also the function and the distribution may impact the health deterioration that patients have. So, for example, thinking about visceral adiposity uh, as opposed to subcutaneous adiposity, and also thinking at what the term that we now use, which is a sick fat disease, where the adiposity per se may also be generating metabolic changes. And of course, how we make this diagnosis is by putting things together, putting body mass index together with waist circumference, taking a comprehensive history and physical examination to specifically look for if we find excess or abnormal adipose tissue and then linking this with a deterioration in health. And that is what allows us to make the diagnosis of obesity. So now we have to say, how would you tell Jake about the diagnosis of obesity? So I talk to patients about this being a disease of the part of the brain which they cannot control by thinking. But, you know, you and I cannot think ourselves less hungry or think ourselves more satisfied. But if you do have this disease, then I am focused on the deterioration in health. And there's more than 220 complications of obesity. And we can classify them either as metabolic, as mechanical, or mental health. And these complications, one isn't more important than another. You have to work out what is happening in your patient and how can this be addressed in your patient. So ultimately, what we want to do is we want to treat the disease of obesity to reduce the existing complications of obesity to prevent those complications becoming worse, but also to prevent new complications of obesity emerging. So ultimately, we're just using a chronic disease model when it comes to the disease of obesity and do what we as healthcare professionals do well. So thank you for watching and join us for the next episode where I will discuss the next steps to an obesity diagnosis. Hello, I'm Professor Carl LaRue, and in this episode, I will discuss what the next steps are in diagnosing the disease of obesity. So which patient should we refer to a specialist clinic and when? Now, I'll remind you that Jake is our 52-year-old gentleman that presented um, and complained about, you know, snoring loudly and feeling very tired when he was waking up. And of course, on visual inspection, you could see that he was overweight. You went on and you've done your clinical examination. So you confirmed that he has a body mass index of 30.5, a waist circumference of 106. You have now received back the specialist investigation that showed that he has a normal uh, full blood count, but he does have a hemoglobin A1C of 6.3%, suggesting that he also has pre-diabetes. So what would you do next? So I would suggest that at this point, we need to advise Jake that he has the disease of obesity and he has the complication of prediabetes. And I would like to exclude sleep apnea by doing a sleep study.
And now I need to ask him if he would prefer uh, for me to start the treatment or whether or not he wants to be referred to a specialist clinic. And that's a very quick conversation to have, even within primary care, um, that allows the patient to understand that they can receive treatment locally or they can be referred um, to a specialist center. Now, we follow the same criteria as would you would do for any other chronic disease. So say, for example, you have a patient with asthma, you know, and you can control the asthma, then you do so in primary care. But if you find that the asthma is becoming above your level of competency or your level of comfort, then you need to refer on. So therefore, every clinician has a different threshold um, at which they would refer. And so I would argue that we should be doing it just by putting obesity in the same box as all other chronic diseases. So we deal with obesity exactly the same as we would deal, for example, with asthma or hypertension. And I sort of train our fellows that if you're never sure what to do next, think to yourself, what would I do if I was treating hypertension at this point? And therefore, you just go through the same motions and do exactly the same thing. Because ultimately, what we want to do is we want to support obesity management as chronic disease management. So I would like everybody in my practice to have a better nutritional um, uh, input, a better activity and exercise input. And it doesn't matter what your body mass index is, but I specifically would like this also to be for people who have the disease of obesity. I do not think that healthy nutrition or healthy exercise is going to treat the disease of obesity, but what it will do is it will improve the health gains of people that have the disease of obesity. So you understand it's not about weight loss, it's about health gains. But how do I do how do I get control of the disease of obesity? And of course, I can use the three pillars. So first of all, psychological interventions, pharmacological interventions, and surgical interventions, because these are treatments for the disease of obesity. And if we've done them well, then what we can do is support better nutrition and better exercise, specifically to drive health gains in our patients. So thank you very much for watching and join us in the next episode where I will discuss how to best achieve a multidisciplinary approach for the management of people with the disease of obesity. Hello, I am Professor Carl LaRue, and in this episode, I will discuss the importance of a multidisciplinary team approach for the management of people with the disease of obesity and how best to achieve it and to ensure continuity of care. Now, before I start, I would like to ask you who is involved in the management of obesity um, in your center? And you know, that varies dramatically from center to center. You know, sometimes we have a single um, healthcare professional. Sometimes we work in a small team. Sometimes we have a more elaborate team. And I think what we now understand is that we can provide um, really high quality obesity care 
in what any in whatever center you have so depending on your availability what you have from a um, colleague point of view we can shape the treatments you know as we would for any other chronic disease so whatever you have you can always change but you can still provide really high quality obesity care with the resources that you have available today so do we need multidisciplinary approaches for all the management of people with obesity? And I don't think we should overemphasize specialist care, but rather focus on chronic disease management, which can happen both in primary and secondary care. So we understand, you know, the rule of 80% of stuff that's easy, 20% of stuff that's hard. And the 80% of stuff that's easy, we can manage in most centers. Of course, the 20% of stuff that's really hard, we can refer to specialist centers. But not everybody needs to see a multidisciplinary team. And patients who are more complex need to see the multidisciplinary team and that's the same, you know, if you think about type 2 diabetes. Most people with type 2 diabetes, they can see their primary care center, um, and that would be perfectly fine. Um, but if they do need more input and specialist input, then they can be referred with specific questions to a specialist center. So, nor does everybody need to see every member of the multidisciplinary team at every time point. Um, they need to see the members that are required at that point to make the biggest difference. So we can carefully construct our multidisciplinary teams not to become a barrier for obesity treatment. So because if you think everybody needs to see a multidisciplinary team and everybody needs to see each member of the multidisciplinary team every time, what you're doing is you're creating another barrier um, for people um, with obesity to uh, access treatment. So we need to define very clearly what is the task and what is the jobs of each member of the multidisciplinary team so that we don't have too much overlap, but in fact that we are complementing each other when we are working. So we need to be recognizing obesity as a chronic disease that has a spectrum. Some of the stuff is simple. Some of the stuff is really hard. We need to improve the training and education of healthcare professionals. And specifically, we need to be um, conscious of the bias and stigma that patients do suffer because of the disease of obesity. We may have limited resources and finances, but we need to understand that even within our own structures, we can still deliver high quality care. And of course, a complicated disease, you know, can be managed in more complicated ways, but any treatment for obesity requires continuous management. And I think that is going to be our biggest struggle, is how we can convince our patients and our systems that we need continuity of care and chronic disease management as we go on. So in summary, not all patients need the input of a multidisciplinary team. Not all patients need every member of the multidisciplinary team at every episode, but we need to clearly define the roles of our members so that we can deliver personalized care to the patient who's coming in. So thank you for watching and join us at the next and last episode 
where I will discuss the evolving obesity care landscape. So hello, I am Professor Carl LaRue, and in this sixth and final episode, I will discuss the current and emerging treatment options for um, the management of the disease of obesity. Now, when we are thinking about the pillars of obesity management, we understand that the roof that we want to underpin, you know, is really better nutrition and better activity and exercise for our patients. Everybody in society need this, and people with obesity also need this, but ultimately it's for health gain, not weight loss. The way we are going to manage a disease of obesity is, for example, with better psychological interventions, better pharmacological interventions, and better surgical interventions. And I would like to ask you, which of these options do you consider to be the best treatment for the disease of obesity? From my point of view, I would say we don't know until we discuss with the patients. We don't have to force people to have treatment A before they can have treatment B. We need to get the right treatment to the right patient at the right time, and therefore it can vary between patients. So don't force somebody to have a treatment that they don't want to have. If we look at the pharmacotherapy options for the treatment of obesity, we can see that there are already a number of treatments that are um, approved by both the U.S. system, the FDA, as well as the European system, the EMA. Some of those drugs are pretty old. We've been using them for more than two or three decades. But some of them are very new and exciting. Um, and I think this evolution of pharmacotherapy is what's going to change the landscape because these are scalable solutions that are both safe and effective for the treatment of the disease of obesity. And if we think especially about the newer treatments that bind the GLP-1 receptor either selectively or non-selectively and therefore also bind other receptors, for example, like the GIP receptors, you can see that it has effects on multiple organ systems. Of course, I am interested in the subcortical areas of the brain because that's most likely where a large number of the diseases of obesity are situated. But you also see weight loss independent benefits. For example, on the pancreas, better glycemic control. You see changes in the liver. You see changes directly on the adipocytes or for example, in the kidney and the heart. So we have multiple benefits across the entire system that addresses so many of the complications of obesity. So I am thinking about obesity as a chronic disease that can be treated using standard chronic disease management structures. It is no more special or less special than any other chronic disease. And of course, obesity can be diagnosed and managed by healthcare professionals to the satisfaction of both the patients, but also the providers. And I think that is an important thing that we have to focus on is provider satisfaction. Do healthcare professionals now with the new tools enjoy treating this disease and getting control of this disease and reducing the symptoms that our patients suffer from. And of course, the success of treatment for obesity should not be measured in kilograms. 
but the successful treatment of obesity is measured in health gains. And talking to your patients specifically about what is the health gain that would mean the most to them also helps you understand why it is important to treat the disease of obesity. Now, in some people, that may be they want to get control of the disease of diabetes or they want to prevent them having another heart attack or a stroke. But in many patients, it's the functional gains. It's the fact that they can do things. They can play with their children or their grandchildren. They can go out with their friends. It's these functional gains that are the health gains that are so valuable to our patients. So thank you very much for watching. I hope you have found this educational activity useful um, for your own clinical practice. And I certainly think the future is incredibly bright when we're going to start treating obesity as a chronic disease. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.